So we're ready to go again. We have an article review coming up due on Friday. Um, again, it can be submitted. You can turn it in here, turn it in through the Dropbox on D2L anytime by 6 o'clock Saturday and still not considered late. So you can get that in either way. And we have an iTunes quiz which is up and available. And that covers the pictures from the 15th of September through the 12th of October, so through last Friday. And that will be available all week. It's up there now. You can look at it. You can also wait until this weekend. But it won't change. Whatever, whatever's already there is going to stay the same. I'm not adding any new pictures in. So by waiting, you don't get stuck with more pictures than you did if you, if you wait. I'm starting with the 13th. I'm starting to make up iTunes Quiz 3. Yay! And I'll probably get, I will probably get through four. So that means that they'll end up being 10 regular quizzes and four iTunes quizzes, which is 14. And the syllabus says there's 12 quizzes, so that means your lowest two get dropped. So, yay, two quizzes get wiped out. And they can be either ones. If you do bad or miss, miss one of these, you can get that dropped. If you missed one of the others or did really bad on one of those, those can get, those will get dropped, either one of them. Observing night, we're going to try again for the 23rd and hopefully you get a nice clear night that night. And we'll be here set up for observing. I did get my other class talked me into extra credit on it. So if you are here, make sure you see, make sure that I see you and that I know you're here and I'll add in like five points extra credit. It's not a lot, it's not gonna, you know, but a little bit of encouragement to go. It's not gonna make, likely make a big difference in your final grade, but five points is five points and who knows where you'll be at the, where you'll be at the end. So I will do that, but just do make sure I see you. I'll have, I'll have a, bring a pad of paper or something and I'll write down whoever's whoever I see there. But make, make, sure that I, make sure that I see you. So if you just come in and are there, I'm not going to necessarily, depending on how many people we get, I'm not necessarily going to catch everybody. I mean, we're inviting one, two, three, like four professors worth of classes, of classes. So we're probably talking several hundred students are being invited between <laughs> classes here and classes online. I expect a bigger turnout from classes here. Although the last time we invited people, I think I got two to show up. So. That wasn't for an observing session, that was for a lecture that one of the other professors was giving. But still, I offered the same extra credit. So if you were here, you know, it's worth being here. Maybe we'll get a little bit more for the chance to observe. It only does count if it's good weather. So don't, don't bother showing up if it's pouring down rain because I won't be here to, to give you credit. So you know, if, you're, if you're unsure earlier in the day, email me. I'll let you know if it's going to be on or if it looks like it's going to clear up that night, we'll be here. But just showing up if it's you know, a snowstorm as it was a year ago, well, not quite, it was about a week later, but you know, we had that nice snowstorm last October. You know, it's no use looking. If we cannot able to see anything, it's no use bothering to come in. So check what the weather is going to be like. Keep an eye on that, and we'll go, we'll go from there. Hopefully, we'll have a better idea by next Monday as to you know, what the weather will be like. Homework 5, which I gave out last time, and I do have copies here. If you need a copy, anyone who missed, you can get one after class. That is due a week from Friday. And then quiz five will be coming up on chapters 11 and 12 that we're uh, finishing up chapter 11, should be done with that. We'll be done with that this week and starting on chapter 12. And that will cover, that'll be not this weekend, but the following weekend. So, questions? No, 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 no. Okay, 15. All right, then we have a picture for today as every day. I'm going to turn that off for you there. Help you see it a little bit better. It's the aurora over the white dome geyser. 
So no, it's not some alien landscape. Well, that's the first thing I thought when I looked at it. It looks like some kind of alien landscape that you get from a science fiction movie. You know, Deserted rocks here and some little volcano or something spewing stuff out into the atmosphere. But no, this is actually taken in Yellowstone Park. And one of the geysers there, and not Old Faithful, but the White, White Dome geyser, which erupts about every 30 minutes and is very hot heated water from deep down below the surface, heated by magma down there, that gets expelled out through this narrow vent and erupts about every 30 minutes. So we have an eruption from the earth. We also have an eruption from the sky that we see behind it. And we see the aurora there behind. And you see the aurora in this case in two different colors. Now usually when you see a nice aurora you get a lot of the green. That's a lot of the oxygen in the lower Earth's atmosphere that gets excited by the particles from the sun. So you see that there. You're also seeing in this image, that's why I turned off the light so you can see the red a little bit better up higher. The red comes from a glow from much higher in the atmosphere. Way up in the very outer reaches of the Earth's atmosphere where the oxygen is not near as dense, you get a reddish glow. So you get a reddish glow from further out. You get a greenish glow when you get much closer in to the Earth. And then actually below that, the nitrogen can get excited and you can actually get a bluish and see kind of a purple range. You don't see that on this one, but you see that on some pictures of the aurora. Now I've mentioned the aurora before. They're caused by the charged particles from the sun interacting with the Earth's magnetic field and kind of smashing into the atmosphere and causing it to glow with an emission spectrum. Right? I've been looking at spectra. Um, if you look at though, if you look at that, then you could actually see the emission lines and see what is what is actually making up the aurora. So, interesting picture. Not, not a nice alien landscape, which is the first thing I thought of when I saw it, but a nice a nice picture nonetheless. Any questions on on that before we go on to the next portion? Or go on to continue on the Interstellar medium. No, no. All right. Well, we were looking at this. The last thing I showed you was the dark dust clouds. And this one was the Horsehead Nebula. And Max, before I forget to give those back. So the Horsehead Nebula was just a dark dust cloud that happened to have a very distinctive shape. Looks like the head of a horse, you know, a chess piece there almost out in space, out towards the constellation of Orion. Nicely visible still in, in the early morning. We'll get more visible in the evening sky over the coming months. But nicely visible in the morning this morning before sunrise. But just a nice dark area. And again, that dark area doesn't mean that there's no stars there or nothing there. When we zoom in a little bit more, you can start to see some of the dust that actually gets illuminated. And you can see some of the dust there. And that actually blocks out the light from most of things behind it very little is going to be able to penetrate through that dust to allow us to be able to see it. And that's sort of where we were finishing up last time was just we were talking about the dark nebulae and then we finished up looking at this looking at this specific one. And I said I wasn't going to get into this one last time. I'm going to go ahead and start on it now. Because one of the things we see is when we look at this interstellar gas, it's very cool. So not very high temperature, very, very low temperatures means it's not emitting a lot of visible light. And one thing that does emit at very cool temperatures is radio radiation. So we can detect these dark dust clouds, even though they're not emitting a lot of visible light, we can detect them because they're emitting 
radio light. And when you have atoms out there in space, nice cool gas cloud, we've got a lot of out of hydrogen atoms. Remember 90, 90% of the universe in, in terms of atoms is hydrogen. Hydrogen has a proton and an electron. Well, those objects have spins associated with them. So they can either spin one direction or they can spin the other direction. So there's two, there's two choices you can have with a hydrogen atom. They can either spin in the same direction, the proton and the electron, or they can spin in the opposite direction. Think of that as just like two different energy states where the electron can be in this orbit or it can be in this orbit or it can be in this orbit. Well, it can have two different energy states here. The lowest energy is when they're spinning opposite. So when the proton is spinning in one direction and the electron is spinning in the other, that's the lowest energy state and the most stable. So it wants to be in that one. But it's not a big amount of energy to go up to getting them spinning parallel. It's very easy to do that. It doesn't take a whole lot of energy. They can bump into each other and excite themselves up into this very low excited state. Not near enough to get them up to emit visible light, but enough that they can emit radio light. And in fact, they emit, this causes the emission of a radio photon with a wavelength of 21 centimeters. So not visible light, very much, much longer wavelength, but something about 21 centimeters long. So that would be right about that. You know, that, about that that's how long the wavelength is. So very, very low energy. Very long wavelength photons. But there's so much hydrogen out there that we can use that to map out where all the hydrogen is. It doesn't take a lot of energy. As I said, atoms bumping into each other can excite them enough to emit this kind of photon. They can transfer enough energy to go from spins being opposite, that's the stable state, to being lined up, that's unstable. Doesn't want to stay there, so it's flip, the electron spin will flip. And to lose that energy, it has to go someplace and it goes out in the form of that photon with a wavelength of 21 centimeters. So we can detect that from all these cold gas clouds out in space. We can detect that hydrogen, that, that, this, this radiation. We can detect that hydrogen. So it's a way to see indirectly with radio what we could not see visibly. We can't see that hydrogen gas out there. Those hydrogen atoms are not being excited. They're not close to a star. They're not, the electrons are not being excited to their higher energy levels. So they're not jumping back down and giving us ultraviolet or visible photons or infrared photons. We don't see any of that. But they are being excited enough that we can see radio photons. Doesn't take a whole lot of energy to give you that radio photon. So that's one way we can use, and we use this 21 centimeters to map where the hydrogen gas is in our galaxy. So here's an example. If we look at not necessarily hydrogen, but we can also see other molecules. This is the uh, M20 nebula, so another ne one, of those, one of the nebulae out in space there. And we can look out, we can look at, we can look at hydrogen, you can map the hydrogen, you can map things like carbon dioxide, you can map things like water. This is actually a map of a compound H2CO, which is hydrogen and carbon monoxide combined together. And you can see where the peak is, where all the gas is, is where the contours peak. So it's like looking at an elevation contour on a map on the Earth. 
You know, as the lines get closer and closer together, you're getting higher and higher elevations. Here it means you're getting higher and higher concentrations of this molecule. Where's all the light coming from? All the light's coming from right here. That's where the star is that's exciting this nebula, causing it to glow visibly. But where is all the gas? All the gas isn't concentrated right here. All the gas is concentrated well away from that star. In fact, out here, where there's hardly anything seen, there is still a lot of gas. So it's invisible to us. For an optical astronomer looking at that with the telescope, no matter how long you look, you're not going to see anything. That gas is not excited enough to glow in the visible part of the spectrum. But it can be excited enough. Many of these molecules, again, this one, carbon dioxide, water, carbon monoxide, or other ones that we can see that allow us to map out through radio where the material really is. There could be a lot of material here, but when it's a gas or a molecule, it doesn't block, it's not blocking a lot of light the way dust, a dust cloud will block a lot of light. Gases don't block a lot of light. Gases will not block a lot of light. They'll only block very specific wavelengths. So you can't see, you will not be able to see them. They're invisible to the visible part of the spectrum, to an optical astronomer, but they're quite visible to a radio astronomer looking at that with a radio telescope. So just because we see a lot of material in one, space, in one place with an optical telescope, we see there's the gas. It's very easy to see where it is. That doesn't mean that's where all the material is. There might be a lot more material out here, as we found out in the radio. There's a lot of gas out here that is not being illuminated by that star that's just too far away. Maybe there's going to be more star formation in the end going down here as this starts to collapse. So eventually you may expand out and form, form new stars down where there's more material. Here's a picture of carbon monoxide. Yay, pretty, right? Don't want to breathe carbon monoxide, but there's a heck of a lot out of it out there in the universe. And this is looking at our, in part of the Milky Way, so we're looking within our galaxy, and you're just looking at where the carbon monoxide is concentrated. It's just, we use it sort of as a tracer. You can use hydrogen as a tracer. You're using one, just because there's carbon monoxide in one spot doesn't mean there's nothing else there. In fact, it likely means if you're detecting a lot of carbon monoxide, that there's also a lot of hydrogen and helium there as well. So you're seeing areas that are very dense in carbon monoxide, other areas where there's not as much gas. So very dense areas, denser areas, denser areas, those are likely to be the parts, places, where stars are in the process of forming. And again, they're deep down in these clouds, we can't see them directly. So we can't see them visibly, we can't see them, you know, can't go out there and watch them, we can only see them through looking at, primarily through radio in this case, and sometimes in their, when, they're, when they get hot enough, through infrared. We can see enough light deep down in these. But visible light is completely blocked out. So again, a lot of things that we didn't even know about until relatively recently, until we were able to, over the last 100 years, less than 100 years, to be able to observe with radio waves. All right. Now I said we're going to look at how a star forms, and that's what we're going to go through here. This section is on how a star like the sun forms. So we're going to consider a star about the mass of the sun. So we're going to go for that for its beginning, and then the next chapter we'll pick up through the end of its life. But chapter 14, or chapter, chapter 14, chapter 14 is on the Milky Way galaxy. We're getting a little far ahead. Chapter 11 
is going to talk about the interstellar medium and it kind of leads into this star formation. Because what you have is you have those dust clouds out in space. So you've got these dense cl- denser clouds, more material than typically around in just, the, in just the universe in general. Not a lot of material from anything that we consider you know, dense on the Earth or even less little density on the Earth. They're pretty much a vacuum compared to what we'd think of on the Earth. But for some reason, it begins to collapse. That's the good question is why does it start to collapse? It doesn't want to necessarily. It's perfectly happy out there. It's just a big cloud. Gravity is there pulling it, but it's not not strong enough to get it to collapse just on its own. You need something to begin to start it. You need something to kind of start that collapse and contract the cloud down. A couple different things can occur. You could have two clouds could collide into each other. You got a cloud moving here and a cloud moving here. If they push into each other, that's going to start contracting them. Once you start collapsing them, then gravity takes over. So once you get material starting to form in the core, then it becomes a runaway effect. You get more material, denser, it has more gravitational forces, starts pulling the material in. So once the collapse starts, it'll continue. But getting it started in the first place is a good question. Colliding gas clouds is one example. Um, A supernova explosion, maybe another star had formed that exploded and started started contracting the other side. You send out a shock wave that smashes into a cloud and causes it to compress and starts it collapsing. There's a couple different ways you can start the formation, but there has to be something. There has to be some event that triggers it. And one of the things we think for our own sun is that there was likely a supernova that occurred relatively nearby a little over five billion years ago that actually started the sun's collapse. And we measured that because there were certain radioactive isotopes that were detected that would only have been present. They wouldn't have lasted long enough in the universe to have been become part of the solar system unless they were in a, the only place they could be formed is in a supernova explosion. So going back, you start collapsing it for whatever reason, colliding clouds, exploding star, for example, and it becomes it collapses, center becomes hotter and hotter. So you collapse the material down to the center, that gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And eventually nuclear fusion will occur gets hot enough, as we talked about when we talked about the sun, the proton-proton chain, remember? That messy little, messy thing we looked at? We had two protons, all the protons combining to eventually make helium. Once you get that forming in the core, then we actually have a star. So that's sort of the one slide summary of it. And then we're going to go through it in a little bit more detail over, over the coming slides. So when we look at just a few things, there's gra- gravity exists. Gravity is called is universal. Every two particles are pulling on each other. But all, particles are also in their own random motions. So that means that if you have just a few particles here, and they're moving through and they're moving close to each other, they get close to each other at some state, the gravitational force between each of those is so tiny that it really doesn't matter. There's not enough force to slow down their motions. So they're moving closer together. They pass real close together. And guess what? They just keep going on their way. Yes, there's a gravitational force between each one. But it's very small and it's not enough to, to close off and slow down there, those particles. Not until you get enough of them. You need to get a large number of particles together 
And then you get a much larger gravitational force. If you can imagine, instead of having five particles here, you had 500 billion particles there. Then you've got a much stronger gravitational force, and that's going to start slowing things down. It'll slow down the slowest of them first, collect them, and the gravitational force would, keep, would continue to build. And then you would be able to actually form a core down here that would, that would be, be your beginnings. Not the star itself, but be the beginnings of the star. Now we go through stages. We're going to look through one stages 1 through 7 in this chapter. And then we pick up on chapter 7, uh, seven through 15 or 16, I think, on the, on the next one. This is from your textbook. And these are the different stages. So what we're looking at is what's happening to it. I'm not looking for the specific stages. You don't have to memorize all the times or anything or the temperatures. But look at the general progressions. What is happening is that you're going from a central temperature. When you start out here with this interstellar cloud, that's what we've just been looking at this beginning part of this chapter. Those interstellar clouds are very cool. 10 degrees. Not 10 degrees Fahrenheit, not 10 degrees Celsius, 10 degrees Kelvin. Zero is as low as you can possibly go. So 10 degrees Kelvin corresponds to minus 260 degrees Celsius and minus 400 and some degrees Fahrenheit. So as almost as cold as you can possibly get. What happens to that temperature as it collapses? As that cloud starts to fragment and you start to form what we call a protostar, as we start to form a star and we get to a main sequence star, the temperature increases. It goes from 10 degrees to 100 degrees to 10,000 degrees. Now we're talking about real temperatures. Still bitterly cold here, but 10,000 degrees is starting to get something hotter than the surface of the sun. Up to a million degrees, five million degrees, we still haven't made a star yet. Even at five million degrees in the core, there's not enough energy for those two protons to overcome their repulsion of each other to combine. Ten million degrees is where that kicks in. Ten million degrees is where it finally kicks in and you can actually start to have a star. It's actually a star because it's producing its own energy. 15 million degrees, that's for a star like the sun. That's where it's landed on the main sequence. That's where it's going to sit there and stay for most of its life. The surface temperature did the same thing. It was pretty uniform when it started out. It's not when it finishes up. The central temperature has gotten a lot hotter because it's producing energy. Surface temperature has certainly gotten hotter. It's gotten up to about 6,000 degrees. Densities. How many particles do you have in every cubic meter? Maybe only a billion when you start. Only. That's pretty dense. That's not a bad vacuum, really. A billion particles for cubic meter. That's not much. You've got many, many times more than that than you have on the Earth, in the, just in the atmosphere. And that constantly increases. So it's again, the temperatures are increasing. The densities are increasing. The diameter is not increasing. Right? Diameter is going to get smaller. It's condensing down. So you're going from things that are 10 to the 14th kilometers, 1 followed by 14 zeros, 100 trillion kilometers, down to things that are the size of the sun. So you're taking something that was tremendous, that was light years across, that is condensed down to the size of the sun. The most interesting one I saved for last is really the times. How long does it take? to go to the next stage. 
The longest one by far is stage 7, is the main sequence stage. That's where the sun is right now. That's where it's been for 5 billion years. That's where it will be for 5 billion years more. So 10 billion years worth. How long does it take it to get to that? How long did it take the sun to form? Well, stage 1, once it starts to collapse, takes about 2 million years. As it starts to fragment and become a protostar, you're talking 100,000 years. Protostar stages, as, you, as it heats up, goes for about a million, 10 million years. It'll form a star, it'll be about 30 million, 30 million years before it actually settles down and reaches some, quarter, some sort of stability. So 30 million years, 40 million years, and a bunch of little things, so you're talking less than 50 million years. 50 million years, 10 billion years. Big, big difference. This happens almost instantaneously, right? To the sun. Not to us. 50, 50, oh, goodness, 50 million years, that's a long time. But if you're looking 50, billion, 50 million years out of a 10 billion year lifespan, well, that's its birth. It's like that, to it. So very, very short times. Meaning that when we catch these stars like that, we're looking at them in a very, very short fraction of their lifetime. So these clouds that we're seeing aren't going to be there long. When we see these clouds and we see where stars are forming, they're not going to last very long. If we could come back in a few million years, they'd be quite different. All these nebulae would be quite different. The stars aren't going to change. If you could come back in a million years and look at the stars, then by few, there'll be some changes. Few of them will, few, few of them will be gone. Few more might have formed. But for the most part, nothing's changed. You can come back in a couple million years, nothing's much going to change in the sky. They're all moving a little bit. The patterns will be slightly different. But overall, you know, you'd probably be able to recognize. If you could recognize the constellations now, you'd recognize some of them, maybe a little distorted, but you'd be able to recognize them even a million years later. But you wouldn't be able to look at all the nebulae. The nebulae would be gone. They don't last that long. We'll see that when we get to the other, st other side too, when it goes out. Almost all the time the, set the star spends with its life is on the main sequence. It's got this little bit before and this little bit afterwards. So let's look at those stages. So what's happening is again, something starts this cloud to contract. It's not just going to contract on its own. Just a whole bunch of particles, they're moving around, you know, random directions. There's no reason for it to, for it to collapse. You need something to start it. And that's where I said, perhaps a shock wave, perhaps clouds collided together, perhaps a star exploded. Perhaps just new stars formed and the young stars pushed out, their intense solar winds pushed out material and started the thing condensing. What happens is that cloud will start to fragment. It'll start to collapse. It won't collapse into one gigantic star. Stars will only form up to about a certain size, about 100, 150 times the mass of the sun is about as big as they typically get. So it'll fragment into pieces. So this will break up into a couple pieces. Those will each break up into a few pieces. Yes, it shows it is going to from one to four to four, each of those to well four and three and five. It could be much more random than that. You might get some that form bigger stars that might only form a couple out of it. You might get some that form a whole bunch of little stars. Just depends on the exact concentrations of particles within that part of the cloud. So as it contracts, again, it doesn't just contract to one great big star it starts to contract to a number of little stars. So little stars here, stars, few big clumps here, into a much more large collection of protostars. We're heading towards what we call a protostar phase. But this is just the whole thing fragmenting. 
So something started it collapsing, it starts to break apart. It starts to break apart, it starts to break itself into little pieces. And each of those will turn into something like the sun. Stage two, the individual cloud fragments start to collapse. Once they get dense enough, they don't split apart. It's only when they're very low density that they keep splitting into pieces. Once you get enough material there, gravity is strong enough that it halts the fragmentation. Otherwise, you'd break things down, not to stars, but you'd start forming planets, or you'd break them apart into asteroids, and you'd just form a whole bunch of little tiny, you know, um, small asteroids in space and wouldn't give you any kind of stars. It wouldn't help you. Once you get enough density there, it stops. So you don't start to fragment anymore. And that's when you start to form a star. We've heated it, and it's gotten all the way up to maybe 10,000 degrees. Now that's the core temperature. That's not hot enough to do anything. Okay, not hot enough to begin to fuse hydrogen to helium. We need, you know, 100 times that, 100 times that temperature. You need 10 million degrees, not 10,000. So you need 1,000 times that temperature. Sorry, 1,000 times that temperature to be able to do it. But it's begun to get heated up. It was only 10 degrees. Now it's actually something hotter than the surface of the sun deep down in that core. Still can't see it. Should be visible. It's hot. 10,000 degrees is visible. But there's so much material around it that it screens it all out. Is it visible if you look into the infrared or the radio that can look through that cloud? Yes, you could see it then. But the visible light, to the, vi to the visible visual astronomer, this is still all invisible. We can't see that. That's way <coughs> down there and shielded. So here's an example looking at the Orion Nebula. Orion Nebula, the Orion, constellation of Orion has some very young stars in it. It's got some nebulae where stars are forming. So it's thought to have a little bit of everything there. And we look down deep in what we call the Orion Nebula, which is here, if you're familiar with Orion, this is Orion, <coughs> tracing out the body, the sword, or the belt, and the sword of Orion. And right in the middle of that sword is not really a star, but the Orion Nebula. So if you actually zoom in there, it's actually a nebula. It's not a star, it's a nebula. It's a cloud of gas that is being excited by a couple, in fact, four very hot stars towards the center. In fact, not even four very hot stars, one very hot star. There's four of them there, but it's really the one at the center, the one hottest one that is doing all of the excitation, is causing this nebula to glow. But when we look deeper down inside, we see, if we look at some of these parts, we can see where other stars, those are the stars that have formed, that have already formed. Those have actually reached the main sequence. They're stars. We can see them now. They're visible. But around there, if we look in more detail in the radio or even invisible part of the spectrum, we see visible part, we see some dark clouds. Can't see anything there. But there's Material there, we can detect it. We just can't see through it. So deep down within those are some of these stages. This is where the clouds are, are condensing and starting to fragment. When we look a little other parts, we can actually find some stars. Here's some things that have fragmented or are in the process of collapsing to stars. Now the problem with that, if you remember those time frames, I told you how short they were to the star. They're still long to us. So we can sit there and watch this today. And I can come back five years from now and look at it. It's not going to change. It's going to look exactly the same. I can come back 100 years from now. It's going to look exactly the same. Remember, those time frames, while very short to the star, we're still talking tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. 
So if you could come back in a million years and look at the Orion Nebula, it's going to look completely different than it does now. But it's not going to change in our lifetimes. Not unless you're going to have that really, really, unless you're, not going to be around, unless you're planning on being around for a million, couple million years. You know, then look at the Orion Nebula, and you can remember that you know, Professor Wagner was right. It changed. So it will, we're just not going to be able to see it. It's going to look exactly the same to us. But it's a problem in astronomy in that we can't really sit there and study. You know, I'm telling you how this, how this process goes theoretically. And from looking at all the different stages, I can see stars in each stage. But I can't sit there and watch one. I can't just say, oh, let's just watch this ga gas cloud. That's going to be my, you know, my job as an astronomer. I'm going to spend my whole life watching this gas cloud. It's not going to change. It's going to look exactly the same when I start my career as when I die. It's not going to change in our lifetime. Now, if you're lucky and you happen to pick the right star that happens to blow, a star that happens to blow up, you might see a change. That's about the only way you get to see a change within somebody's lifetime is a supernova explosion. That's the only thing that occurs quick enough. Everything else that we look at here, while very short relative to a star's lifetime, is very long for ours. But you're looking down here and you're seeing these stars, again, starting to form. Here in the radio, you can see that there are clouds there that are condensing, not just, you know, not just a single one, but a number of different areas. Here's some dark clouds that are forming, that have formed. So you're seeing a number of different stages at once. Now, I told you you were going to see the main sequence a lot. Here it comes. Now that you've condensed it enough and heated it up, it's going to finally be able to be shown on the HR diagram. Before this, it was way too cool, way too cold. It's only talking tens of degrees. It was way off to this side. And its luminosity was about nothing. It was way out of, it was, wasn't even on the diagram. When it first appears, as it starts to collapse, so it's gotten a little bit warmer. It's heated up to maybe a few thousand degrees. So it actually has a, a temperature. has a relatively high luminosity. Still not visible because it's buried in the rest of that dust, so we can't see it visibly. But it has a low temperature and a high luminosity, so it ends up forming up right in the red giant phase. That's not a red giant. Red giants come later, but it'll form in the same part of the HR diagram. If you could plot a protostar, if you could see a protostar and measure its temperature, measure its luminosity, you could plot it and find out where it would lie on the HR diagram. And it's going to lie up in the upper red giant, red supergiant stage. It's a very big star, still collapsing at this point. So it's going to get smaller and smaller. It's going to work its way down as we go through the next stages to the main sequence. Very big and very cool. It's also a star like the sun is also going to warm up here. It's 3,000 degrees, so it has to get to a higher temperature a smaller size and a smaller luminosity. Its luminosity is big right now for the same reason a red giant is. It's not that it's so hot or anything, it's just that it's so big it has such a big surface area. So it starts out there. Now we don't confuse them with red giants because you can't see the protostar. Protostars are buried. They're buried down deep in these nebulae so you're not going to confuse them with a red giant star. Red giants are going to be sitting all by themselves. You're going to be able to see them. They're the ones you're going to be able to plot here. But this is just where it would be if you were doing, doing the calculations, finding out what its temperature and what its luminosity, where it would appear on the main sequence. And this is where planetary formation is beginning. As that star collapses, again, you have a great big cloud out here. After a couple million years, it started to condense down. 
as it condenses, it flattens, so it forms down to a disk, which starts to form the star at the center. So there's your star forming at the center, getting to be a protostar. Again, it's not a star yet. We haven't gotten hot enough to produce energy at the center. But it's still heating up. All that energy comes from the gravitational collapse. A particle has some energy when it's in a gravitational field. So all these particles have some energy. As they collapse down, they give up that energy and that energy goes into heating up the star. So that star will heat up and will get up to millions of degrees without any nuclear reactions just by the fact that it's collapsing. As these particles rush closer and closer together, that star, that protostar is going to heat up. While that heats up, not all of the material condenses into the star. Some of it is left in a disk. You got the remnants left behind. So when the sun formed, most of the material went to form the sun. The dregs that were left over formed the planets. Little tiny bits, there's not much. Put all the planets together, you don't come close to making a sun. Not even close. Put the planets together a hundred times and you might start getting close to you know, what, the, what the sun is. Those are just the little bits and pieces that are left over. So we've started to form those planets. We've started to form planets and we think that's a natural thing. When a star forms, that it doesn't just form a star, it tends to form a planetary system as well. But all the heating so far has come from the collapsing particles. As the particles collapse down closer and closer together, they release energy. They're releasing energy. They had some energy because they were up high. They wanted to be down lower. As they went down, they released that energy, heated up, heated up that protostar. So that's what's heating it up. Those first few million degrees are just from gravitational collapse, from the star getting smaller and smaller and contracting. Then as we go through, now we can actually follow things on the HR diagram. We can see how it changes as each, at each stage. So what's happening at first is that star is pretty much, it's contracting. You had a bigger star protostar and it's collapsing down and getting smaller and smaller and smaller. As it gets smaller, its luminosity is going to decrease, right? Its surface area is getting less, so it's not going to be as bright as it was before. Temperature is increasing a little bit, but not near enough to account for the luminosity. So it just pretty much works its way down as it's collapsing through stage five into stage six. Stage six was the star. Stage six, six was when it became a star. That's when nuclear reactions occurred. So it's getting more compact. As it's, as it, once, it get, once it gets hot enough, so the temperature was about a million degrees in the core, five million degrees, ten million degrees, finally it's hot enough and dense enough in the core for hydrogen diffused to helium. We have a star. It's not done yet though. It hasn't finished collapsing. So it's gotten hot enough in the core, but the sun's going to get up to 15 million degrees. Just turning on nuclear reactions doesn't heat that up. So what happens after it starts, it kind of makes this little zigzag over to the main sequence. It doesn't continue straight down. It actually, that production of energy increases the temperature a little bit. And luminosity stays eventually right the same. It kind of has a little jump in it, but it stays about the same from where it was here to here. It doesn't change a whole lot in luminosity. It's about the luminosity of the sun here. It's about the luminosity of the sun when it finishes up. It's just heated up the temperature of the surface that last little bit. So it kind of makes that little zigzag onto the main, onto the main sequence. 
But we can follow, and when I say we can follow them, we can follow them theoretically. <coughs> if I put all those stellar structure equations into it, we can follow and predict exactly what's going to happen to this star. We can't follow any individual star. Again, we can watch that star in stage four. 500 years from now, it's still in stage four. It's not in stage five, six, or seven yet. So we can't actually watch an individual star. So I don't want you to get the idea that it's a thing we can watch these stars and see they're going to move on the HR diagram. They will if we could watch them over tens of millions of years. Then we could actually see. You could see, okay, here it is, 10 million years later, now it's in stage five. Come back 10 million years later, now it's in stage six. Then we could actually see, see that. For our lifetimes, we're going to see only stars in each stage. We'll see some stars in stage four. We'll see some in five, some in six, some in seven. And we have to sort of piece all that back together to figure out how the life of the star goes. And one way to think about that is it's trying to, it's kind of like a puzzle trying to put together, if you had to decide, you know, how, how do people change over a lifetime? But you could only look at them this instant. And you could look at a whole group of people and you'd see little kids and you'd see older people and you'd see a whole range of people and you could probably try to piece together, you know, how a person evolves over their lifetime. Harder to do, easier to do if you could just watch one person and watch the kid grow from, you know, an infant up to old age. Be a lot easier to do. That'd be much easier to do a star that way. But we can't. You can't, not unless you're going to live, to do, see the whole thing, you'd have to live more than 10 billion years because that's how long it's going to be in the main sequence. But we can see different stars at all different stages. These stages up to the main sequence, we can see the next set of stages from chapter 12 as it goes back off the main sequence. So we can look at all those different ones and kind of piece together that we can see. Here's the pieces, you know, here's the infant stars, here's the old stars, here's the, here's the middle-aged stars, here's the, the old stars, here's the dead stars. You know, we can piece everything together from that. But it's more of a puzzle trying to put it together because, as I said, we cannot just watch any one star, any one cloud, form a star, go through its whole life and die, except in a computer simulation. Now, we can simulate it, but then the simulation is only as good as the theory going into it. So you have to try to match it up to what do you actually see. So, finishing up stage six, I sort of showed you them there and mentioned them, but give you the actual text here. Stage six, we've reached 10 million degrees. <laughs> 10 million degrees is the key. Once you hit 10 million, you have a hot enough density, you have a high enough density, you can actually undergo nuclear fusion. So hydrogen now, it's starting at stage six, hydrogen is fusing into helium, and we now have a protostar, had no source of energy, was not a real star yet. Now it is really a star. The star, definition of a star just means an object that is producing energy by nuclear fusion. So once it can do that, it is a star. It's not a main sequence star. It hasn't yet gotten to the main sequence. And that's what we looked at the last stage. Stage six wasn't quite there yet. It's still collapsing. It's still getting smaller and smaller until it reaches a balance. And that's what we call equilibrium. So it's still contracting. It's producing a little bit of energy in the core. So now it's starting to produce energy to keep it stopping from stopping collapsing, right? Producing energy in the interior, that pushes outward. That starts to balance gravity, so the collapse slows. But if you're not producing enough energy at the core, you're not producing enough energy yet, the gravity is still stronger and pulls it down. As it pulls down, it heats the temperature up, produces more nuclear reactions, produces more energy in the core, and tries to push outward. Eventually, you reach a balance. You reach a balance where you're producing exactly the right amount of energy in the core to balance the gravity trying to pull that down. 
And that's what the sun will do. That's what stage 7 is. Stage 7 is the main sequence, is what we call equilibrium stage. That means that it's perfectly balanced. There's exactly enough energy being produced in the center of the sun to balance gravity. How do we know they're balanced? Because the sun is staying the same. The sun isn't changing. If they weren't balanced and the sun starts producing a lot more energy in its core, it's going to expand. It's going to start producing more energy. It's going to overwhelm gravity. It's going to start to push the sun apart. If it produces too little energy in its core, it's going to start to collapse. Gravity is going to start producing enough energy to, repel, to, to fight against gravity. It's going to collapse down. It will do that as long as it's got enough hydrogen in its core. So it's sort of a fight between gravity and the energy being produced. Gravity is going to win in the long run because eventually it's going to run out of hydrogen. You know, you've only got so much hydrogen there in the core. Once that hydrogen is gone, it's got no energy source and it's going to start collapsing again. So the core starts to collapse and interesting things happen to the outside, but that's the subject for the, for the next chapter. But as long as it can produce, as long as it has hydrogen to fuse into its core, in its core, to fuse into helium, at a tremendous rate, I just gave the numbers to the other class because they're looking at the sun, and it's like 10 to the 38th reactions every second. 10 to the 38, so a 1 followed by 38 zeros. Hydrogen's into helium every single second for 10 billion years. It's a lot of hydrogen that you're converting into helium over the course of, that, of the sun's lifetime. But it has that much mass to be able to do it, and will be able to do that for 10 billion years. Till that Again, once the hydrogen is gone, then things change. Then we move out to the next, next phase. Now as it condenses, we start to see, again, some signs of planetary formation. We also see some interesting things. We'll come back and look at jets a little bit more when we get into galaxies. Jets are very interesting in astronomy. They tend to form as things are collapsing inward that everything doesn't just collapse inward, that some material gets strewn out of that collapse. So you might have material. Here's the image of it here. So there you can see the two jets. Here it's expanded out this way. And you can see one jet of material this way, one jet of material from this central star that is forming in this case. So as this material is collapsing, it collapses down to a disk. But as it spins out, it also gets jets of material streaming out towards of the poles. Very intense. This happens in galaxies near a black holes. As material streams down near very compact stars, the material streams down into it. It also not only gets condensed into the center, but some of the material gets thrown out. So we see this again. We'll see this when we talk about neutron stars and black holes in chapter 13. We'll see it when we talk about galaxies in chapter 15 the same type of process occurs. So by some means, as, that, as they're collapsing, as some of that material is collapsing down, some of it is actually thrown out of the system at extremely high speeds. Now you're not really seeing the whole jets here. You're seeing the results of them. The, the, the star is down here at the center, hardly visible. But the material is thrown out. And when it inter intersects the other material out there, it causes it to glow. So that material, as this jet streams out and smashes into something, when it smashes, that's when we see it. So when it actually hits material in the interstellar medium, so maybe some of the other gases around it, that's where it's striking. That's where it's exciting that material and causing it to glow. They always come in pairs, too. You don't always see the pairs, but they usually they come in pairs. So you'll see one going this way and one going out the other direction. 
If you're looking deeper down, this is sort of an inset looking very, very close into it. A disk of material around the star that's forming. So your star forming would be deep down here. And the material isn't flowing directly from the star. I don't want it to sound like it's, you know, it's material streaming off of the star. It's as it collapses in. It's a whole disk around it and material streams out sort of from the poles of the disk. So it's not like the star is directly losing material, but it's that cloud that was collapsing as material got, gets, th- gets thrown out. Let me see what's, where am I? Well, here's a couple of other. I'll just show you these and we'll finish up here. These are just a couple of other protostars looking in the infrared and in the visible part of the spectrum where you can see some. These are protostars, stars that are in the process of forming. So these would be like red giants on the main sequence if they weren't embedded in so much dust making them nearly invisible to us optically. So there's an example here and you can see a little, you see it barely. Here in the infrared you see a little bit more. You can actually see part of a, part of a disk forming up. So we do see it. Orion is a good one to look at. Orion has a lot of, a lot of star formation, a lot of star formation going on in it. And I think, let me just, yeah, we'll go over, I'm not going to go over those. I'll go, I'll go over that next time and look at uh, what other stars might do. So we'll finish up with protostars here. Are there any questions? Questions? No? No? If you need a copy of Homework 5, if you didn't get it last time, I do have copies of that, of that here you're welcome to get. Otherwise, have a good rest of the day and I will see you on Friday.